NHS professionals employed us as clinical tracers. We were recruited by Capita. Sittle provided access to tracing apps and systems. These all required different usernames and passwords. Synergy CRM assigns cases. CTAS captures contact tracing information. Ring Central was used for voice calls. Max Connect was used for storing knowledge about contacts. And all of these systems were accessed through Amazon Workspace. I mean, this sounds a complete mess. Meager food packages for kids on free school meals a £22 billion track and trace system that isn't fit for purpose. And people asked to travel hundreds of miles for a COVID test. What do all of these things have in common? They've all been outsourced to the private sector. The food parcels are a disgrace, basically. But people appear to be making an awful lot of money out of it. They've outsourced this. The private companies have totally bungled it, totally messed it up. During the COVID crisis, the government had published details of outsourced contracts worth around £3 billion, while the true figure is likely to be many multiples of that. But why are these vital services being run by the private sector? Are the allegations of cronyism true? And who's making money out of all of this? So why then is it that this government is rewarding private sector failure by extending those contracts? Does he regret handing billions over to the private sector who have failed so spectacularly? And will he now give it back to local public health teams who know their communities best so that they can do that in all areas? Or is he going to continue to allow private sector, which has no proven track record in this particular instance, and protect some of the interests of some particular companies that certain civil servants allegedly may have? have links with. In this episode of the Weekly Economics Podcast, we're finding out how outsourcing became the government's bread and butter. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. This week, I'm super excited to be joined down the line by the New Statesman's Britain editor. Wow. Anoush Kellyan. Hi, Anoush. Hi. Yeah, it's quite a broad title. <laughs> it's quite it's just difficult to say. New Statesman's Britain editor. Why is that? Maybe it's just me. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, uh, and I'm also really happy to be joined down the line by founder and director of the Public Services International Research Unit at the University of Greenwich, David Hall. Hi, David. Hi. Very good to be here. Did I get that right? Well, you did. I'm not actually director anymore, but uh, I'm still a visiting professor and working with the unit. Fantastic. Okay. So let's dive in because I'm, I'm really, I've got loads of questions about this topic. It's something I've been mulling over for months. Um, so I'm really excited to speak to two experts about it. So I want to start by talking about some of the COVID response services that have been outsourced over the last year that I mentioned in the intro. So firstly, test and trace. So Anoush, could you tell us about some of the problems with the test and trace service? Yeah. So you mentioned First of all, the cost of it, it was one of the biggest contracts, one of the most expensive things that we had to get up and running as fast as possible to try and keep track of the virus and also to try and prevent it from spreading. And its failures have been widely reported. I mean, it consistently failed to hit its targets for contact tracing. So you're supposed to hit 80% of contacts in order for it to be effective. And, and that hasn't worked. So although our testing infrastructure is much more efficient now, SAGE has actually said that NHS test and trace has only had a marginal impact on the spread of COVID-19. So there's been a lot of problems with it. And this is one of those areas which combines the two sort of most worrying things about the way that the government has been sort of funding and contracting out its COVID-19 response because it has that whiff of cronyism attached to it because of the person at the helm, the conservative peer, Dido Harding. She's a former Talk Talk chief executive. She doesn't have a background in public health. She doesn't have that experience. She's also married to the Tory MP, 
John Penrose. So that sort of adds to the chumocracy image. Quite enjoyably, Penrose's role in government is anti-corruption champion, which I which I quite like. Um, oh. She's also on the board of the Jockey Club, which is based in Matt Hancock's constituency, Newmarket, which is a sort of horse racing constituency, and they share a love of horse riding. So there's that whiff of cronyism ar- around it. But also there's the problem with al- outsourcing as well, which has kind of defined the government's failings in its pandemic response. So a lot of the work has been contracted out to sort of these giant contractors like Serco, who employ thousands of call centre workers to try and do this contact tracing centrally. And that has been nowhere near as effective as the local authority track and trace efforts. So we have these local health teams who can do contract tracing, it turns out much more efficiently. So they trace over 97% of their contacts compared to the test and trace system, which often hits below the 80% that you need to be effective. So you have sort of two examples there, one of of someone being appointed who may not be the right person to have been appointed. And and that brings up questions about, is it who you know, rather than what you know? And then you also have the problem with outsourcing to private companies not being as effective as using the public health infrastructure that you already have. So I think it's quite a good encapsulation of the sort of sometimes wrong decisions that the government has made in terms of its policy. Bloody hell, yeah. I mean, I say it's a bit more than a whiff of cronyism. It's a pong. I can smell it from here. It's it's overwhelming, the stench. But yeah, I mean, I had a staggering fact about this actually come across my desk from the lovely team at NEF, um, that Test and Trace currently spends 2.75 million a day on private consultants, which means the amount the government spends on private consultants in just 26 days is more than the entire budget for the Test and Trace support payment scheme that's supposed to ensure low-paid workers can afford to self-isolate. So I mean, it certainly seems to be quite shocking just how far short this is falling. David, just building on that, could you tell us a bit about who's been running the test and trace service, like some of the details and why the NHS isn't running it? Yeah, in terms of who's actually been running test and trace, it's been uh, primarily Serco and some others. Uh, Serco is the longest standing outsourcing company in the country. It uh, got its first contract running our early warning system against nuclear missile attacks. And alarmingly, it still has that contract. So if anyone is going to attack us with nuclear missiles, then we're relying on Serco to warn us. They're also using software that was designed by Boeing, who famously uh, designed some software for their uh, 737 MAX airliners that don't fly. So there's lots of reasons to worry there in any case. These were some of the contracts, some of the vast majority of contracts that were awarded without competitive tender. Normally, the uh, procurement procedures are supposed to protect against corruption and ensure efficiency by inviting competitive bids from a number of companies. That hasn't happened under COVID. What the uh, National Audit Office found was that £10.5 billion worth of contracts rewarded directly and £6.5 billion rewarded by framework agreements, which is like contractors who've got sort of call-off monopolies. And for example, that's how the PPE system works. Was the cronyism accidental? Absolutely not. I'm quite astonished because I've looked at um, examples of corruption and procurement in many countries around the world, but I can't remember before coming across a country where civil servants were instructed to give priority to contractors who had personal 
knowledge, acquaintance with MPs or ministers, they were actually instructed to do that. So that was a kind of explicit instruction of if they know someone, bump them up the list. Yeah, there was a fast track process. There was a high priority channel. Quite astonishing. I find it quite remarkable as well that nobody has uh, explored whether there has been some breach of law. And if there hasn't been a breach of law, why on earth not? What kind of laws have we got on procurement that allow ministers to say, give priority to our friends for issuing contracts? It's really Mm. a systemic problem. Okay, just following on from what Anoush said a second ago about the local test and trace systems and the evidence that they're more effective for a fraction of the money. David, why do you think that is? Uh, Because in general, the advantage of having public sector in-house capacity, public sector workers, that when you have a service that you need to run continuously, you know you're going to run it continuously. This isn't something that's subject to the fluctuation of markets or fashion. People are always going to be sick. There's always going to be some kind of infections and there's a need for a track and trace system. You employ people permanently as part of our public resources to deal with this. So we have both people and a system with the experience and know-how how to do it competently. Serco very clearly had none of those. And it's a very simple illustration of the vital importance of having in-house capacity, our own workers, bring it in-house directly. Mm, I mean, it certainly seems like a bit of a no-brainer. Okay, so let's talk about some specific things. Let's move on um, to talk about the free school meals scandal. So after shocking pictures emerged online of the bleak food packages that had been sent to children on free school meals, Anoush, you did an investigation. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found? Yeah, sure. So there was one picture in particular that kicked this all off, and I'm sure you've all seen it. And obviously, this is a podcast, so um, it's it's important for me to describe what was in that picture for any of your listeners who may not have seen it. But it was a very meagre spread. It was two potatoes, one tin of baked beans, eight single cheese slices, two very sad looking carrots, three apples, two bananas, one small bag of penne pasta, one tomato, which seemed particularly stingy three frubes, two serenes, and a loaf of sliced bread. So a photo of the spread was posted by a Twitter user, a mum, who said that it was given to her instead of £30 of food vouchers for her child who was eligible for free school meals. Um, And it turned out that this so-called hamper, which is actually what they called it, was sent from a private catering company called Chartwells. So this is one of many firms that are contracted to supply free school meals around the country. So schools and local authorities sometimes and academy trusts do their own contracts for catering. Some of them have in-house catering teams and some of them contract out that service. So it turns out that this contractor, Chartwells, was the one to send these packages around. It said it fell short of its standards. It eventually released what should be in a package. And of course, it led to the scrutiny of a lot of other contractors who seem to be giving out substandard meals to children who were at home instead of at school. And I looked into this and I saw that there's this school catering professional body, LACA, which had been involved alongside the Department for Education and Public Health England in drawing up the guidance for food parcels. And they were the ones who were advocating to have parcels sent out rather than supermarket vouchers, which had been the previous system during the holidays 
to help parents feed their kids while they weren't at school. And it turned out that the national chair of LACA, Stephen Forster, who laid out the guidance, you know, which lobbies the government to give out food parcels rather than vouchers, is a director at Chartwells, which is the contractor which was being accused of profiteering from the food boxes. So it looks Mm. like the government had been swayed by these arguments to give out food parcels rather than vouchers. And that, of course, led to an argument less about procurement and more about the morality. You know, why should you assume that parents don't know best about how to spend money at the supermarket to feed their children. I think the mother who sent that original tweet said that she could have bought that stuff from Asda for £5 and she could have made the money from vouchers go much further. So it led into an argument about how best to provide for people on low incomes and, and their children. And it's very important part particularly of what people are going through during the pandemic, because every time we get to another school holiday, there's another row over how the government is going to support children who are living in poverty and going hungry because of the way that they've been affected by the financial toll of the pandemic. Mm, So just uh, to stay with that for a second. So, you know, as you mentioned, the value of the packages, if you'd bought the food in a supermarket, was often just a fraction of the value of the food vouchers the packages were supposed to replace. So did the company then, did the companies just pocket the extra cash? Where did that money go? So that is the accusation. That's the fear, is that these catering companies are sending substandard packages out to children in order to sort of pocket the difference. Um, It's difficult to tell. We don't know how much profit they make from these contracts. But what's interesting is that Chartwells reaps a very good business from from English schools. It supplies food to over 3,000 education establishments. And I added up its contracts that it was awarded in 2020 alone, and they came to £9 million. So there is money to be made in this industry. I can't tell you how much money Chartwells have been making from the from the launches from that particular contract where the image went viral from. But I mean, it, it doesn't look good. Mm, certainly doesn't. David, what were your thoughts on the free school meals scandal? Sad to what Anusha said. One is that, sure, clearly giving out vouchers would be much better than giving giving the money to Chartwells to provide substandard food worth only £5.60. Another possibility, of course, is to take more seriously public responsibility for supplying food. And it could have been an opportunity for local authorities, for example, to set up divisions linked to the school meal service, perhaps, to actually provide decent food in that way to uh, kids and would also have been an opportunity for improving the quality of food. I mean, apart from the price and profit margin issues, the other thing about those photographs and those lists is that this is a pile of uh, a lot of junk food. We could have taken a better opportunity. So vouchers for individuals to spend isn't the only possible uh, alternative there. But the second thing is, yeah, Anoush is quite right. There's really huge amounts of business being given out to the catering contractors, both through school meals and hospital meals, both of which were subject to outsourcing under the Thatcher regime in the 1980s, 1990s. And Chartwells uh, is not just one of the biggest contractors, it's part of an even bigger group, a huge multinational called Compass. And another subsidiary of Compass, one that's responsible for Compass's own uh, supply chain, is called Food Buy. Now, Food Buy also is sitting on a very surprising contract, and that is 
a contract to award food procurement contracts for the NHS itself. In other words, they're not actually getting the contract to supply the food. They are deciding who gets the contracts. They're actually awarding the contracts because the NHS has been going through a process deliberately, the government has been going through a process deliberately, of privatizing the procurement system itself. So we have Compass Group companies, Chartwell's being the leading one, getting contracts for the uh, catering business, and we have other Compass Group subsidiaries right in there. Alongside that, and another element of embedded cronyism in the system, is there is a quiet list of 35 companies which the government have deemed to be strategic suppliers. They're treated as a key part of government. They're too important to fail, which is unfortunate because Carillion was one of them and, of course, failed spectacularly. But we actually pay civil servants to be our crown representatives to these companies as though they were foreign powers and we were sending ambassadors and so we pay people to every month have, well, in the trade, it's usually called a working dinner with Serco or Deloitte or Compass to see if they're happy with the way things are going and the way things are being structured. And this, of course, means that these 35 strategic suppliers who are designated as too important to fail are effectively given a very, very strong advantage when it comes to being awarded contracts. Mm, So it's certainly not a free market myth of the best competitor will secure the contract? No, that's exactly right. You see, I mean, the theoretical logic of outsourcing is what you do is you buy an expertise that you haven't got in the public sector from people who are real experts at doing this because they do a lot of it outside the public sector and they compete with each other to offer the best deal. In practice, we get neither of those. We get companies like Serco. Serco does no business in the private markets at all. All their business comes from government contracts or public service uh, concessions in various countries around the world, but primarily the UK. So they have no expertise in other areas that they're bringing into public service. Their only expertise is in winning contracts from the public sector. Mm, So that logic really doesn't hold. Okay, Anoush, I want to come back to the issue of cronyism that you touched on at the beginning. So in the first six months of the pandemic, as you mentioned, a slew of companies with links to senior members of the Conservative Party secured contracts to respond to the pandemic. And I guess I want to know kind of how worried we should be about that. I mean, we hear these stories of a Tory peer being made head of test and trace and the wife of a treasury minister heading up the vaccine task force, Matt Hancock's former neighbor sending a WhatsApp message, which won him a contract to produce COVID tests. You know, I could go on and on, but I guess what I'm really interested in is how worried should we be about this and what it might mean for, I guess, the future of how this government will operate, but also Is this something that's specific to the Conservative government? Or would you say that cronyism could and does appear across the political spectrum? Well, I mean, it's difficult to answer that second question because we have had a Conservative or a Conservative-led government in power for so long now. And I think that the specific sort of context of the pandemic has made that cronyism or that instinct to, to outsource 
and to ask your friends for help even more sort of exposed and even more extreme. So I think it's, it's difficult to compare just because of the way that recent circumstances have exacerbated the problem. And, you know, as David was saying, usually you would have a competition for these contracts, but actually I think it's only one in a hundred of the COVID-19 response contracts have gone out to competitive tender. So that I don't know whether or not, you know, once we resume normal business, then we will resume normal, (laughs) uh, normal contracting or whether it's opened the door to this kind of fast tracking style system. You'd hope that it wouldn't because the National Audit Office and others have been revealing how inefficient that kind of contracting is. We should be worried because of the way that some of these multi-million pound deals have ended in failure. So one of the main examples is a firm called Ianda Capital, whose senior advisor was at the time an advisor to the Board of Trade, which is part of the Department for International Trade. So this firm got a multi-million pound contract for supplying PPE, but its masks didn't end up being the right type. Um, And so there's all sorts of examples of these kind of contracts that haven't ended satisfactorily. So we should be worried from, you know, simply the fact that it's a misuse of public money to procure like this. Um, And then you get all of these strange cases of contracts being awarded to companies without experience in in the field of providing medical products like jewellery designers, pest controllers, and a manufacturer of bouncy castles and blimps. So that last one was the one that was uh, used by just a bloke who ran a pub close to Matt Hancock's former home in his constituency. I mean, there's a photo of him pulling a pint in that pub. That's the guy who WhatsApped him. He'd been emailing him. He's been in Zoom meetings with him. His company usually just produced plastic cups and takeaway boxes, but he sort of pivoted to supplying these medical vials to the NHS. And so, yeah, I do think we should be worried because it's, it's, it, promotes this kind of culture of people who use their contacts rather than use their expertise to try and fulfill these absolutely huge deals. You know, there's so much money at stake and there's so much public money that is wasted when they go wrong. And I think you're 10 times more likely to be successful in winning a contract if you do have political connections now, if you go through that high priority route for the COVID-19 contract. So I think it signifies a worrying trend and a worrying instinct that our ministers have. Hmm. David, same question, but particularly, I was hoping you could just really elucidate how what's happening now is different from standard government procurement practice, if indeed it is different. Uh, Yeah, very good question. The answer is yes, it's different because it's far more kind of naked opportunism. As I say, the priority fast stream for people who know ministers is a bit of a world record, I think. But no, in the sense that it's a continuation extension of the drive to outsource as much work as possible from public services, which has been going on for over 30 years now. And we should remember that the NHS itself was restructured in 2012 under the Cameron government, the coalition government, in such a way that the Secretary of State is no longer responsible in England for the NHS. He is responsible for managing the issuing of contracts to carry out work for the NHS. So, in a broader sense, we're already seeing this arm's length kind of devolution uh, through contracting. A lot of that, of course, is to NHS entities like trust, but 
in principle, that opens it up for outsourcing. And one of the things it does, I'll come back to the point I made earlier, is that we start losing our own in-house capacity and become vulnerable to whatever the private sector decides is worth uh, producing and whoever it decides is worth employing. And so there's a, I think we need to step back a stage or upper level to the more overall choice, which is, do we outsource this stuff at all? Yeah. If we're going to outsource, we should have tendering, we should have competition. And yeah, we normally have more of that than we have done under COVID, but the government's just issued new proposals uh, for revising procurement laws, which will actually make it much easier to operate through what is euphemistically known as negotiated procedures. Uh, so, that's what ought to happen if it's outsourced. But basically, we ought to be insisting that our politicians, our civil servants, ask the questions about every function, every service. Should we be doing this in-house or should we outsource? And the default assumption, for example, in France, there's a law that when local authorities who are responsible for water services in France, unlike here, before they can invite tenders from private companies for the service, they have to. They have to decide, do we want to put this out to tender at all? What are the arguments for outsourcing this rather than doing it directly? And so there's an insistence that that pride question has to be answered. That could be introduced here. And the last Labour manifesto, in fact, had proposals that would have changed procurement law or changed local government law in particular and a similar proposal for the NHS so that the default assumption for services was in-house. So you have to justify, what are we getting? What kind of expertise gain are we making by outsourcing this work? Why shouldn't we be doing it ourselves? Because we have to do it this year, next year, the year after. We want to build our capacity, our public capacity, to deliver these public services. And so why don't we have that now? I mean, how did we get here in terms of the history of how outsourcing became such a central part of how the UK government works? How did we wake up one day and end up so far away from where we think we should be? I mean, it went in the other direction in sort of the early decades after the Second World War. In the 1970s, there were, believe it or not, there were public busts of cleaning contractor cartels who were meeting in London to fix who got uh, contracts from governments. And cartels like that are typical of uh, outsourced norms. There was the the Department of Ancient Monuments, as it was then, English Heritage, as it is now. And it was just riddled with systemic corruption, whereby the civil servants running it were doing deals with a cartel of contractors. And that's typically what happens. You get cartelization on both sides. So we got rid of that in the 1970s and cleaned up the act. Then in comes the Thatcher government discovers privatization and outsourcing in a big way. And this is music to the ears of the companies because in general terms, if you look at what's been happening to economies, not just in the UK, but over the world, companies have increasingly struggled to find new areas of work to invest in profitably. So suddenly, the public sector looks like a raw developing country ready for colonization. 
by the private sector. Okay, there's all this work that is currently not having any profit made out of it. We can take profit out of that. So, you drive outsourcing and you make outsourcing the norm. So, the reverse of what we were talking about before, whereby in-house should be the norm, you make outsourcing the norm. And that was first introduced by Thatcher, first in the NHS, then local government, and continued to be the norm since and was revised and extended under this serious conservative government quite quietly, but quite insidiously. As I say, the idea of this list of 35 strategic suppliers is um, a very unusual formalization of a private sector cartel in the sense of a favored group. Mm. So coming to the end of the podcast, I want to wrap up with some public opinion. A poll went round, I'm sure that both of you have seen recently, showing that 60% of British people feel that the behavior of the general public is at fault for high levels of COVID we're seeing today. And this kind of seemed to me to be you know, a clear example of how often it feels like the Conservative government gets away with things or the things that they do kind of tend to fly under the radar and the public themselves are successfully scapegoated. So just to come to you on this, Anoush, is this evidence that the government's reliance on the private sector and its failures have kind of flown under the radar and they've gotten away with it? I don't think so, actually. I did see that poll. Oh, good. And it, it is interesting because, yeah, it is a bit of a depressing poll because it suggests that some of the messaging about how it's the public's fault and how if only you didn't sit on that park bench, then 100,000 people wouldn't be dead. That kind of rhetoric from the government has worked to an extent. So I think people are are ready to blame others for the virus continuing to spread. But I think that's perhaps more of a psychological thing rather than letting the government off the hook, because I do think that there's evidence from polling and from what you hear as well from the private polling that the political parties do, that the public does get really angry with the idea of money being wasted on PPE contracts or the test and trace system going wrong and things like that, which is why you hear the Labour Party going quite big on the management consultants that you mentioned earlier in the podcast being paid so much um, compared to how little is being paid out to people who can't afford to self-isolate, for example. There is political hay to be made in those kind of arguments because people, what we know from general polling about public spending and tax, for example, people really hate the idea of public money being misused. And there is a perception that public money is spent badly. Obviously, that can be a double-edged sword for people on the left who maybe want to campaign for a different way of doing things. Because while the public doesn't like the idea of spending all this money on these contracts that don't work out, doesn't like the idea of the Conservative Party sort of tapping up its mates for these big jobs. It could also fall the other way where there might be an assumption that if you fund public services better, then that money won't be spent properly as well. So you've got to be careful with the messaging if you're someone who wants to make that argument. But I do think that there is anger among people about these kind of things. And you can see it in the messaging that the Labour Party has gone big on in the past few months. Mm, but isn't there a, I guess what I'm thinking through in terms of the messaging point is it feels like, yes, certainly there's that anger, but then would you kind of agree, I guess, that over the many decades of kind of conservative bashing of the ability of the public sector to do anything well and the idea that the private sector is inherently more efficient and those kind of things has kind of had the effect of seeping into the public consciousness in a way of people saying, well, yes, I don't want my money to be misused, but I'm not sure that I trust the public sector to use it well. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly where the danger lies. So it's almost the same argument, isn't it? You know, if you're saying 
the public money is being spent badly. Well, it is. It's being spent badly on these private contracts. But the danger there is that you're also perhaps compounding that perception that councils waste your money or you don't want your taxes going up because you don't know where it goes and things like that. So I do think the messaging needs to be subtle. So that's why it's probably quite difficult to try and win the public round on this. But having said that, I think there has been a lot of discontent on all sides with how certain aspects of the pandemic response have been handled. And perhaps that doesn't show through quite so much now because there's a lot of leeway, there's a lot of sympathy. A lot of people who you interview will often say, well, yes, all this has gone wrong, but we didn't see this coming and it's such a big challenge for any government. And there is Mm. definitely a distaste for any suggestion of political opportunism in this period, but that's not going to last forever. You know, the long-term impact of the pandemic is going to shape our politics and public sentiment towards our politicians for a long time to come. Mm. So David, coming to you on public opinion, but in particular, one area that seems to be functioning well is the vaccine rollout. And uh, I think polling is showing that the public seem to be acknowledging that and that's being run by the NHS. So would you say that the two things are connected? The fact that this is something that's being publicly run and the public are recognising that it's a success and also it's beyond the kind of outsourcing problems that we've been discussing? I think that's right. I mean, it's quite a simple contrast that I think is quite visible because of uh, all the publicity focus there's been on it. The vaccination process has worked well, smoothly, on the basis simply of existing NHS resources, local NHS elements simply working and doing the job that they understand how to do. Huge contrast with test, track and trace. In terms of public opinion, I mean, it's quite interestingly complicated, I think. I mean, it's, uh, as Anish said, people are worried always about whether public money is being spent wisely. And one form of that worry is worrying about what the public sector does. But I think the capacity of the public to look at and consider these things differently is quite uh, significant. And so, for example, one of the effects of the whole COVID episode has been to make people far more aware of the importance and value of people who are doing essential work in the public services, including the NHS, most obviously frontline workers like nurses, but also much uh, lower level, lower paid workers as well, and the importance of giving them decent paying conditions. And one of the earliest ways in which there was dissatisfaction with contractors was precisely because it became clear that they were not giving them decent paying conditions, in particular sick pay. And again, one reason for that was a change in legislation that was introduced by the uh, Thatcher government. So I think the public's quite capable of making those uh, decisions and judgments. Other evidence of that is the uh, quite remarkable polls after the December election in 2019. There was astonishingly significant majority support for public ownership of sectors uh, across the board, post, railways, water, buses, energy. Telecoms was the only exception there. Now, it's a different dimension of uh, public sector, but still this was a strong contrast. And it was very uniform, unlike the election results itself. This support for public ownership of those sectors 
is uniform across regions, across gender, across age. Yeah? Finally, Anoush uh, talks about the importance of the narratives and the arguments, and I'm currently working on an international project on narratives about public services and privatization. And one of the interesting things that's throwing up is that these same issues recur in different continents frequently, uh, people's perception of the public sector, perception of the private sector, and so on. But one part of that argument is whether the evidence actually supports the assumption that outsourcing things to the private sector makes it more efficient. And I can speak from the heart, having read hundreds of appallingly unreadable econometric studies, the empirical evidence doesn't support that. No significant difference is the repeated standard result all around the world, multi-country, multi-sector. There is not evidence of superior efficiency. And the same thing is true of the private sector, which makes outsourcing or in-house decisions quite serious strategic issues. I mean, one of the great British companies, JCB, which is also a major Tory donor, in uh, about the millennium, it looked at the way it was spending money buying engines from Ford or whoever and decided, why don't we make our own engines? We know more than anybody else, what sort of engines are needed. So they decided to start developing their own engines. And in effect, they brought the work in-house. And it's been a fantastic success. Also, in general terms, the evidence from manufacturing industry is that companies that outsource a lot actually end up with lower productivity. And the reason for that on the analyses is that you lose the capacity to rearrange production, rearrange your systems in more efficient ways. If you've contracted for two, three, four years, whatever, to a particular outfit, they will do certain things. You can't change that area. You're stuck with it. So even if you can see better ways of doing it, you can't change it. So it's the lack of flexibility, that lack of responsiveness. And that goes right back to where we should be looking at for public service. These are our public services. We determine what's necessary, and they're necessary long-term for us. These aren't market uh, services. They're continuing services. And so since we've decided we want to have public provision of that, we ought to be ensuring we have direct capacity to provide that in whatever way necessary, and you get the most flexible system that way as well. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really useful frame to think of it through this kind of long term, we need to build sustainability in here. And as you say, do away with kind of the myth of the free market intervening to solve all our problems. Unfortunately, that is all we've got time for this week. I think there's so much more to unpack on this topic. And if listeners are interested, we have a great podcast that we've done before with Kat Hobbs from We Own It, Sahil Dutta from Goldsmiths um, and Hilary Wainwright of Red Pepper talking about public ownership more generally, as well as a whole bunch of other episodes on UBS and the like. Anusha Kelly, and thanks so much for joining me. If people want to find out more about your work and read your stuff, which I wholeheartedly recommend, where should they go? What can they read? So they can go on the newstatesman.com to read my stuff online or you can pick up a copy of the weekly magazine. And then we also have the New Statesman podcast, which goes out twice a week. Brilliant. 
And David Hall, thanks so much to you as well for being with us. If people want to find out more from you and read about what you're up to, where can they go? Uh, well, there's a fair amount of stuff on the We Own It website. And if you go to the University of Greenwich website and search for PSIRU, you'll soon find a load of reports that uh, the unit is producing on these and other aspects of public services. Fantastic. That is it for today's weekly economics podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at NEF on Twitter. The Weekly Economics Podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.